Hi everybody, um, welcome to this event by 5 by 15 with Emma Dabiri, Beverly Daniel Tatum and myself Georgina Lawton. Um, I'm really looking forward to tonight's discussion as I hope you all are. We've got some fantastic points of conversation to draw from and I've devoured both Beverly and Emma's recent work. So on to a little about the speakers and then we're going to dive right into the chat. So Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum is the African-American clinical psychologist, writer and author of the best-selling book, Why All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. It is now in its 20th anniversary edition and is available to buy in the UK and from independent bookshops such as Newman Bookshop. In 2013, Beverly was the recipient of the Carnegie Academic Leadership Award and the 2014 recipient of the American Psychological Association Award for Outstanding Lifetime Contributions to Psychology. She holds a BA degree in psychology from Wesleyan University, an MA and PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Michigan, and an MA in religious studies from Hartford Seminary. She lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Emma Dabiri is an Irish-Nigerian academic, writer, broadcaster, and the author of 2019's Don't Touch My Hair, and the Sunday Times and Irish Times bestseller, What White People Can Do Next, which was released in April of 2021. Emma is a teaching fellow in the African Department of SOAS, University London, and a researcher at Goldsmiths. She is a regular presenter across British and Irish television and radio, and her writing has been published in a number of anthologies, academic journals, and the national press. And she is based in London. So a warm welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, we've heard a little about you in that very short bio there, but I was just wondering if you could start off by telling me and everybody else a bit more about your recent books and of course their titles. Both of your books were, you know, called the so-called for having provocative titles. Um, so where have the idea for your books and the title actually originated from? Um, Beverly, perhaps we could start with you. Sure, well, let me begin by saying how happy I am to be in this conversation. So thank you, Georgina, for hosting it. And Emma, thank you for joining me here. I'm really delighted for this opportunity. My book uh, was originally written back in the 90s. It was first published in 1997. And when I wrote it then, I was a professor of psychology at a women's college in Massachusetts, Mount Holyoke College. And I had been teaching about racism for about 17 years. I started in 1980. So 17 years in, I decided to write this book um, because I wanted to answer the questions that kept coming up over and over and over again. You know, we, people often ask, why did I name it? Why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? In fact, it was because that question was asked so often. I did a lot of workshops for teachers and educators, um, particularly in communities that were involved in school desegregation, where black students were being bused into predominantly white communities as, an, as part of an integration effort or desegregation effort. And when I did workshops in those schools, the teachers, typically white teachers, white administrators, would say, you know, we're doing this desegregation thing, but the black kids are still sitting together in the cafeteria. Why is that? That was often the way the question was posed. My book tries to answer that question, but fundamentally, it's not just about the answer to that question. It's really about understanding what racism is, this, a systemic racism, what is that? 
How does it impact how we think about ourselves as individuals in terms of our own racialized identities? And then ultimately, what can we all collectively do to interrupt the cycle of racism? That's what I hope people take from it. Fantastic. And Emma, the same question to you. What inspired what white people can do next and where did the title come from? Yeah, so I'll start with the title and the title is a provocation in many ways. And it's also using the, um, sorry, before I jump into that, I just wanna say I'm so like delighted and excited to be here. And I'm a huge fan of um, both of both of your work. Um, but Beverly's book is a book that was uh, given to me probably at the start of my own PhD by, um, by a professor who was like, you need to read this. Um, so it's a huge honor to, um, to, to be here talking about my book in that, in that context as well. Um, so yeah, um, I'm using the kind of framework of the current anti-racist narrative, the one that's been like kind of gaining popularity over the last, I would say kind of four years, but has been very much turbocharged by the events surrounding the murder of George Floyd in 2020, an anti-racist movement that takes place mostly online. And that um, I'm in many ways actually um, offering a, not so much a critique of, but more um, an, perhaps an alternative way that we could approach um, what I would call maybe liberation work, um, even a, opposed to, um, or in contrast to, 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 to anti-racism. Um, so the title was, yeah, I guess provocative and using the language that is, um, using the type of framework that we see quite a lot of now. From the moment it was announced, I started to get um, like a backlash. I had very incensed white people who went to the trouble of emailing me and finding my email address and emailing me to tell me how despicable the title is and how racist I am. How dare I refer to them as white people and tell them what to do. But I also had a backlash from black people and other people of color who I think thought I was kind of, you know, just producing another little cute allyship guide and that perhaps I was jumping on what some people have identified as a bit of a gravy train moment. Um, so it was quite frustrating seeing that unfolding and being like, no, I'm using this title in a subversive way to actually like unpack a lot of that stuff, but I can't reveal that yet because that will give the game away. But as soon as people read it, as soon as the proofs went out, people were like, ah, this is actually something very different to what I thought it was. Um, so yeah. Interesting. Um, and Beverly, you know, we have been just talking just now about how there is a huge number of books, yeah, discussing race and identity. Um, obviously, your book first came out in 1997. Do you think the media landscape has changed for the better in the last 20 years? Well, certainly there are some things that have changed in the last 20 years. Um, you know, I want to speak for a moment about that uh, summer of 2020, which in the United States has often been referred to the summer of racial reckoning, right? Following the um, horrible murder of George Floyd and the highly visible nature of it. Um, because one of the things that happened then was this rush among many people, white people primarily, to purchase books about race and racism to sort of educate oneself. And that, um, 
that rush to that kind of self-education represents something that I, my, you know, in the 40 years I've been doing this work have not seen anything quite like it. Um, and so that does convey something different. But um, one of the things I should mention is that the, the book I wrote in 1997 is not the book that is available today in the UK because what you all have access to is the 2017 edition, which I updated um, to reflect on what had happened over the 20 years between the first publication and this one. This version is about 120 pages longer and much of the information that was in the first book had to be um, updated because it was no longer accurate. Um, but having said that, one of the things that caused me to write it in a different way was the demographic shift that had taken place in the United States. The, um, the conversation about racism was not just about black people and white people, though that's still a fundamental binary that people talk about when we talk about racism, but the experience of Latinx youth and Asian American and Pacific Island youth and Muslim youth in a post 9-11 world in the United States. You know, all of these, uh, the indigenous population, native peoples, thinking about what the experience of navigating um, the perpetuation of racism in our society as young people was something that I really wanted to explore because during the time that I served as president of Spelman, which was from 2002 to 2015, I imagine many of your listeners know that Spelman is a historically black college for women in Atlanta, one of only two in the United States. Um, I realized that the young people who are coming of age in 2015, when I retired from that role, weren't even alive in 1997 when my book was originally published. And that their view of the world was different. It had been shaped by circumstances that um, they were experiencing that were not the ones that shaped me or the generation that I had written about earlier. So it seemed important to kind of reflect on that. And if we think about, you know, both the great recession of 2008, the election of President Barack Obama in 2008, if you were born in 1997, you were 11 years old when those things happened. Um, Obama was in the White House for eight years. So from 11 to 19, you had this experience of seeing a black man and his family occupying the White House and hearing people say, we're in a post-racial society. But in fact, also witnessing when you were 15, the murder of Trayvon Martin, when you were 17, the eruption of Ferguson in the United States. And fast forward today, you know, to the events of 2020 um, and the, it seems like steady drip of murders of black men and women by the state sponsored, with through state sponsored violence by the police. So all of those things were important to reflect on and that have shaped um, the dialogue about what's happening right now in a way that is different from 1997. Absolutely. Um, and I'm enjoying the you know, circularity of, of all this because you know, I was born in 92, so that trajectory is, is quite closely aligned to my own timeline. And you know, I was brought up in a white family, so if I'd read your book years ago, I think it really would have informed a lot of my work. And then Emma, you've also, you know, talked about reading Beverly's book some time ago. And here, here we all are having this conversation. <laughs> so yeah, fantastic. And Emma, you also said that prior to this conversation, actually, that you had 
something of a relationship with Spelman where Beverly was president because your father went to Morehouse, which is the historically black male college, am I right? Yeah, so I spent the first, I was born in Ireland, but I spent the first few years of my life in Atlanta, Georgia, and that was because my dad was studying at Spelman. And while we moved back to Ireland, which was a disturbing experience that I've written about in, um, was initially a disturbing experience that I've written about in some of my books. I always had Atlanta in my mind as this like black utopia. And then I started going back as a teenager because I still had a lot of family there. My dad's siblings had stayed there and had married like black Americans. So I had lots of cousins and family in Atlanta. And um, I started going back from Ireland as a teenager. And I was just like, oh my, it was like the antidote to the, to my experiences in Ireland, you know, it was just like the polar opposite. And I was like, I'm going to go to Spelman. Um, <laughs> but then that didn't materialize and London got me instead. So I came to university in London and I'm, I'm still here. But yeah, I think the, um, yeah, I think both Spelman and, and, um, and, ha and um, sorry, Morehouse and, you know, like Howard University, which is another one of the famous HBCUs are just such, yeah, fascinating institutions. Absolutely. And Beverly, why do you think it's important to have um, black colleges? It's just something that we don't have in the UK or, or in Ireland. Um, why <laughs> definitely not in Ireland. <laughs> yes. <definitely. Yeah. laughs> you know, people often, um, I, I want to just situate my response to your question by telling you that I myself was born in the South, but I grew up in New England. I grew up in Massachusetts. Um, my family, I was born in 1954, so a long time ago, but um, at a time when the South was still the Jim Crow South, when it was still segregated schools, and, um, and my parents left Florida in the late 50s to move to Massachusetts, in part because they didn't want their kids to grow up in a segregated school system. They wanted, you know, freedom from that Jim Crow environment. And so I grew up in a small New England town about um, 30 miles from the city of Boston. And in that small town, my father was a college professor, um, the only, or the first, I mean, not the only, but the first African-American professor at that college. And um, most of my growing up experience, I was the only black kid in my classrooms, you know, all my classmates being white. So in that sense, Emma and I have this in common, though very different um, contexts. Um, but I say that to say all of my professional experience as an educator, as a college professor, was at predominantly white institutions and uh, prior to becoming president of Spelman. So during that time leading up to my presidency, I wrote a lot about how to make those predominantly white institutions more inclusive, more welcoming, more supportive, more empowering of the young people of color that entered their gates. Fast forward, now I'm the president of Spelman and many people said, well, you know, you spent all your time writing about the experiences of black youth in predominantly white environments. Doesn't this seem odd that you should now come and be the president of this historically black college? But for me, it was a great experience personally, but also I, I came to really appreciate almost instantly how important it was for young women of African descent to be able to come to a place and say, this place was built for me, where I'm gonna be at the center of the educational experience, not on the margins of it in any way, where I'm going to be 
inspired by women who look like me, who are achieving great things and who are blazing trails that I can follow. No matter what a young woman at Spelman wants to do, it's likely that someone at Spelman has done it before her. So that there's this sense of following in a tradition of excellence that she can rise to. And that is very, very empowering. People will say sometimes, well, don't HBCUs sort of offer a kind of false safety, a false security, you know, it's not the real world. But what I see is that students at that critical moment, that time in development, typically the late teens, early 20s, when they are coming to college, is a time when you're really testing out who you are, who you want to be, how you want to define yourself. And being able to do that without the barriers of institutional racism or gendered racism, um, to be able to test those ideas out as your own individual self, as opposed to being always seen as a representative of a group in the context of an HBCU is very freeing and empowering. And it's not surprising at all to me that we see such great leadership coming from HBCU graduates, including the current Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, who is a graduate of Howard University, because that empowerment sticks with you throughout the rest of your life. I feel even worse about having not gone there now. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Um, and both of you in your work talk about, well, you advocate for talking about race in more honest, meaningful ways in order to solve racism. Emma, you say we need to focus more on capitalism and you actually open you know, what white people can do next with this history of where race and racial concepts um, come from. Could you go a little bit more into that? Um, you know, how, how have we come to exist in a racially hierarchical world? Where have these constructs come from and, and why are they harmful? Yeah, we started to hear increasingly this idea that race is a social construct, but while we're hearing an increased kind of, you hear that phrase almost like a mantra, beyond that phrase, um, I'm actually seeing people digging down into kind of deeper forms of uh, investment, almost in the biological essentialism of race in a way that I find really concerning. And what I thought about this, what I thought about the response to George Floyd's um, terrible murder was the, the huge ground the, the huge um just like groundswell of support just so many people talk so many people talking about um racism and talking talking about racism um but some of the responses to how we would ever create a world without racism um i was just feeling frustrated by i felt as though there was we were presented with this historic opportunity, but perhaps some of the potentiality of that was being squandered. And I saw a lot of um, like missives to white people and to black people, you know, that we're, we're talking about this idea that like, yes, racism is bad, but imagining that there is some outcome other than racism when we continue to reify, to, to reinvest in the truth status of 
race. You know, race was invented very specifically in order to create racism. Another thing that was frustrating me about a lot of the online, specifically discourse, was the lack of any analysis of capitalism or class. And so I thought it was really important that people understood the intrinsic um, relationship between capitalism and racism, the fact that when we have this period in the 17th century, when the idea of a white race is invented, and subsequently a, a, a black or Negro, to use the language of the time race is invented that is um th that is at the kind of origins of the um transatlantic slave trade and it's setting the it's creating the architecture of the form of um of, of the 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 international um capitalism capitalist system that that we that, that we currently exist in. Obviously it's morphed since then, we have neoliberalism and stuff like that, but the origins of the invention of race and, um, and capitalism are like, you know, intrinsically linked. So I just thought it was important that people were at least armed with that knowledge. And the fact that, you know, anti-racism also has to be, to just tap into, you know, those, those radical um, forms of, black liberation struggles in the past which have always been you know inherently anti-capitalist like just reconnecting people with um just some of some more of the detail around movements and the names of activists who we invoke whose names we invoke but whose kind of deeper lessons and things that they stood for are often are often obscured. You know, the fact that the Black Panthers were revolutionary socialists, the fact that Martin Luther King had launched um, like a poor people's campaign in the in the last year of his life that was looking to create solidarity and coalition against all um, all working and all poor people, because he recognized that that was really, that was the way of building a mass movement that would be powerful enough to um, kind of make real progress when it came to race, but also to, to, to inequality, you know? Looking at people like Fred Hampton, again, a, a Marxist, like a, re a revolutionary um, who, even in those, sorry, a Hoover has started next to me. I hope you can't, hope you can't hear that. Um, but who even in this period in American history, you know, far more fraught than, than, than now. It's the period where like the Jim, Jim Crow laws are being, um, are finally kind of being disassembled, was able to have the vision to try and form a rainbow coalition, you know, that was seeking to unite disenfranchised whites and Puerto Ricans and black people to again to create a, a mass movement and just drawing on those radical histories to give people a greater kind of understanding of I guess the role of capitalism and the necessity of solidarity and coalition building in a moment where I was seeing just very divisive rhetoric about race and the truth status of racial groups re-emerging. Re, re, re in a moment, sorry, I'll, I'll finish in, in, I'll finish quickly, but Stuart Hall, um, a, a, 
Jamaican um, British um, theorist, the father of cultural studies, you know, in 1991, he's writing that race is, is an idea that should be under erasure, you know, that is past its sell by date. So we have to be aware of that at the very least. That's why when I write white and black in the book, I put it in inverted commas. I know it's a bit jarring, but it's intentionally to be jarring. I want to signpost that, the, the artifice of those, of those categories. If I might say something about what Emma just said is actually one of the things that Emma, I really appreciated about your book was that you really remind us about the artificiality of race and, uh, and its use Particularly, I remember thinking about, you know, Bacon's Rebellion that you talked about yeah. and, uh, and the importance of that. Um, there is an organization in the United States um, called Race Amity. Uh, it's based in Boston. And um, they produced a documentary called The Other Tradition. And it was really about um, the fact that there was a time when people from Africa, white Europeans were living in harmony with one another prior to this Bacon's Rebellion. They talk about that in particular, but that this other tradition that it's not always been about one group oppressing another, that there has been, um, there have been coalitions. And, and I think the um, reification of the term race or more problematic even, races, as in though there are separate ones, I like to say there's only one human, right? Um, and that uh, at the same time that we have to, and this is the conundrum of language, on the one hand, we have to acknowledge the social construct that is real. You know, mm -hmm. George mm -hmm. Floyd was really killed, right? I mean, that, that racism really killed him. And that, um, that's real. And yet the perception that he was somehow a different form of human being than the person who killed him is a fiction, right? Mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. a fiction. And, um, and we tend to use these words as a kind of shorthand. And some of us maybe know we're using it as shorthand, but other people hear it and it reifies those old ideas of, you know, Negroids, Caucasoids, Mongoloids, et cetera, um, going back to the early days of anthropology. So um, I really appreciated your unpacking that and reminding us to be more precise in our language. Thank you. That's really, that, that's, that's great to, to, to hear that um, uh, affirmation of what I was doing. Thank you. Yeah, I think for me, I've taken, you know, both those things um, from your work, Emma, kind of remembering what's being lost in these conversations around race, you know, looking at the history and um, why race was created in the first place. I think that is really like the missing piece to some of these conversations that we're having on and offline about racial identity. And then Beverly, your work as well. I learned so much um, about just formation of, you know, a positive racial identity. And, you know, it, in your work, you talk about in order for white and black people to, I guess, develop positive racial identities, um, we have to sort of unlearn information, not just about ourselves, but about other people. And that's not just a job for black and brown people, that's a job for white people as well. But how can each of us unlearn that misinformation that we have about race and racial identities in general? How can we you know, do that work? One of the things that I often say is, you know, that, that there's today, there's lots that you can read, right? That helps um, sort of recognizing that, um, 
if you if you recognize that you have been fed a lot of misinformation, how do you start to change that? You have to continually look inward, but you have to be looking outward at the same time, right? You can't just stay at home and read books about it, right? You have to engage or, or post on Twitter, right? You know, you have to engage <laughs> with um, people different from yourself in order to develop that capacity. But sometimes it might mean starting with people like yourself in terms of really trying to, um, this is particularly true, I think, for white people, uh, you know, um, the idea that if you want to learn more, you need to find a person of color to teach you is of course tiresome for the person of color. Uh, you know, we know that. And at the same time, there are people who are willing to share because they write books and because, you know, they put the information out in the world. But there's also a lot of value that comes from sitting with someone whose experience is like your own, uh, whose background is similar to yours, but who also maybe has been thinking about these issues longer than you have and can provide a kind of scaffolding in the learning process. So it is um, important, it's not either or, it's really a both and, to listen to the voices of folks whose experiences and knowledge is different than yours, but also to not presume that people who look like you don't know anything because sometimes they know more because they've been at it longer. Absolutely, it's very true. And funny, you mentioned Twitter there. I was going to bring social media up at some point again, but you know, releasing books in today's current climate necessitates a little bit, a lot of interaction on social media, um, something of a double-edged sword. You can reach a lot of people with your message, but I think there's an element of reduction that has to take place in order for it to be seen, um, in order for it to sort of be distilled. So how do you find social media when it comes to talking about race, Beverly? You're on Twitter. I don't think you're on Instagram, but do you find- No, just Twitter. That it's I have one social just, media yeah. channel, just Twitter. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I remember someone asked me a question uh, on Twitter. It was a complicated question. And I, and I responded by saying, I can't answer this in 140 characters. This is why I write books. And, um, and you know, there's some things that require, I mean, of course, people can do long threads and people, you know, a lot of useful information can be shared in that way. I don't mean to minimize it. I take in information that way. I like to share and connect to longer pieces, you know, because I think that um, it's not helpful to be that reductive, right? It's not helpful to be that reductive. At the same time, you know, having had the opportunity to write my book in the 90s and then rewrite it essentially in 2017, part of my choices around the rewriting were informed by feedback I'd received by readers, you know, questions about things that maybe weren't as clear as I wanted them to be in the earlier version, that I was able to use that feedback to, um, I think, improve on what I had written earlier. So. Uh, I don't want to minimize in any way the value of being able to connect with um, a community that spans the globe, you know, and to learn about, you know, books and uh, articles. And I, I, I think of Twitter as, a, as an information source, less as a way of, you know, connecting just for social purposes. You know, I, I use it in that way. 
Um, and sometimes I take a break from it because I find it um, when it's, you know, sometimes I find it not productive. But uh, I think yeah. that it is here to stay. And so we need to figure out how to use it in the most productive way possible. Yeah, absolutely. And Emma, I guess, you know, what white people can do next was an interrogation of the anti-racist genre and a critical look at, you know, Instagram infographics, um, where a lot of stats and research around race and racism can just get reduced to a few lines for clickbait or, you know, for other purposes. So how do you find it? Because I guess, is that also how this book was born? Um, you created an online resource, right? And then it went viral and people people wanted more. So how do you navigate social media as an academic these days? Yeah, so I think it's like a good, like it's a, it's a good starting point, um, you know, but it can only ever be that. Um, I see a lot of infographics that are, when it's a topic I know very well, that I, so I, I assume this is the same with other topics as well, that are inaccurate. I mean, that they're, they're objectively wrong. Um, but to even to even dare say that <laughs> would might like um, create a kind of some sort of pylon or some sort of um, some sort of you know charge of some sort of charge some sort of online pylon you know so it's it I actually think it's in Twitter particularly is a increasingly a place where I am seeing. Rein, reinventions just straight up reinventions of, of history and research mm. happening gaining popularity being spread and woe betide the person that tries to come with some 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 truth or some empirically kind of based <laughs> um intervention in that you know and i think as well it's it's somewhere where twitter in particular is somewhere where very emotive and um reductive rhetoric is often a lot more uh, popular than a more nuanced or um considered um kind of take you know so and I actually say it's Instagram in, in, in no, sorry, not Instagram Twitter in particular I, I feel has really deteriorated in the time that I've used it when I initially joined I was actually just connecting with a lot of scholars and um, academics and grassroots activists all over the diaspora and increasingly I see Mm, a lot more bad faith actors actually and and, and 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 less of the people that I was actually you know kind of learning from and in quite generative um exchanges with yeah no I hear that um and also you know both of you are academics with interests that lie you know beyond talking about anti-racist discourse online um Beverly you're a trained clinical psychologist with a career you know spanning decades Emma, your work's covered African languages, culture, literature. Um, where can people get more information if they want to know about race and identity and these topics beyond Twitter? Like, you know, where can people start? Beverly, you were talking about reading, but, you know, for someone that doesn't have a reading list, I guess, where, where do people start? Well, I think, um, so if we were going to use social media as a source, um, people often ask me, one of, the, one of the topics that people ask me a lot about is um, around raising children, 
right? How to talk to children about racism and or even expanding their understanding of the human family. And I often suggest that they look for children's books under um, at a website called socialjusticebooks.org, right? Um, and socialjusticebooks.org provides a curated list of books for children of all ages, but it also includes books for adults. So that might be a place to start if someone said, well, you know, what's good? You know, finding a reliable source that um, has vetted some of the materials is a wonderful thing. Of course, you know, I will say in my book, I um, reference a lot of material and that was one of the, a lot of other people's material. Um, you know, part of what makes it so much longer is all the notes in the back um, because I really recognized that in that 20 year period from 1997 to 2017, a lot more stuff had been written that was important and relevant and that I was able to reference not just in terms of understanding racism, but also understanding the psychology of it and how we think about um, what it means to, for example, to talk about unconscious bias. That's a concept that we've been talking about in the 21st century much more than we did in the 20th. Uh, thinking about you know, the impact health-wise in terms of physical and mental health of microaggressions. Again, a concept that we talk much more about in the last 10, 15 years than we did in the years before that. So thinking about how um, population shifts and psychology and the polarization, the increased polarization of our societies, not just in the US as it seems to me, but really beyond the borders, um, shape how we are talking about this conversation today in ways that really require the kind of nuance that Emma was talking about. You know, that people don't want to read, but some people don't want to read. You know, I, I read a lot, uh, but, you know, there's always Audible. There's, you know, there are podcasts. There's ways to digest information um, that allow you to deepen your knowledge and understanding. And, and really, I think it's necessary, particularly historical information. You know, we hear often that those who don't know their history are destined to repeat it. I like to say that those who don't know their history don't know it when it is repeating. And, um, and I think that that is really what we're seeing right now. Uh, Emma, um, what do you think about you know, your book as well, having so many, I guess, texts within your text? Um, you often talk about the other thinkers and academics who have inspired you. Um, how do you select the kind of writers that are referenced in your work. Um, you talk a lot about, you know, James Baldwin, Tony Morrison, um, lots of other people as well, Robin DiAngelo, um, how- I don't talk about Robin DiAngelo. Oh. <laughs> Is that the woman who wrote Right Fragility? Yeah. Yes, yeah. No, I, don't. I don't talk about her. I talk about like Fred Moden and people in the black radical tradition, like Cornel West, um, you know, George Lipson. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I'm I'm referencing that body of literature more than this kind of current articulation of anti-racism. So yeah, I, I, for me, the Black radical tradition is incredibly um, generative and, and inspiring, and you know, just like liberatory in its in its in its vision. Often, um, yeah. So F Fred Moen's work, I'm, I'm I'm a big fan of. Um, but I, I think that um, there's actually so much misinformation I'm seeing, again, particularly on Twitter at the moment, that 
honestly could be debunked by people merely reading this. So I would say, <laughs> if you're going to be talking about race online, at the very least, read Beverly, as the starting point, at the bare minimum, read read this book before you before you want to talk about it because there's so much I'm saying that is seeing that is just you know just wildly inaccurate and 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 dangerous um that I, I read it reading this book would really help um kind of create create more 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 clarity on and in terms of all those sources that I draw on um I like to bring um voices or I like to bring thinkers into the conversation that I guess um whose work has been really transformative for me, but they are probably not as widely known outside of ac academic circles sometimes. They're not as well known in the mainstream. So I like to, you know, kind of bring some of their ideas to more, more mainstream conversations because I find, because I find their work so, um, you know, so, so insightful and so helpful um to my to my own thinking um what else um yeah i think i actually think pe people need to engage with um uh, discourse and text texts beyond the the same kind of repetitive and often inaccurate stuff that that is just being shared online so i think re reading books again podcasts i actually list i, I am a, a late um a doctor of podcasts. I'm uh, just a, an avid reader and have been from a very young age, but I came to podcasts in the last year or two. And I actually listened to a lot of podcasts as I was writing um, What White People Can Do Next, specifically um, Cornell West and um, uh, Tr Trisha, Trisha, Rose, Rose. Trisha Rose's yes, podcast, Trisha Rose. yeah, The, the Tightrope. Um, I love that. Um, so yeah, what else was I gonna say? Um, Again, I think of like, you know, um, the, the Black Panthers and the fact that they had this like six week reading course that was um, required to become a member so that people had a rudimentary political education before they before they joined the party. And I just think the idea that reading is only for people who are, you know, have some sort of privilege or, or elite or I just, I, I just, re I just reject that idea, you know. Um, and then again, I, I think also of like the consciousness raising sessions of, you know, like second wave feminism and the way that the acknowledgement that not everybody was could or was going to read these texts so people would meet and discuss the text so those that hadn't read them could also benefit could benefit from the conversation with those who had. I feel like we do need more offline and kind of physical worlds organizing yeah. and, and, and meeting. Yeah, I think that's a great sentiment. That'd be great if we could have something like that in real life and we all start to meet up again. Um, we're gonna go to questions now. Um, we've got quite a few, but I think this one is for Beverly. It says, how do you start a conversation about race and racism with a young child? And I know there's lots of examples in your book, Beverly, you talk about, you know, discussing race with your son at several points in his life. So yeah, how would you start it off, I guess? Yes, well, one of the things that I think is really important to acknowledge is that children do notice physical difference and they comment on it. Starting from, you know, we know from um, developmental studies of infants 
that even babies as young as six months will differentially attune to faces that match their caregiver and faces that don't, right? So they're noticing difference, but they start to talk about those differences as early as two. And you can hear preschoolers, two-year-olds and three-year-olds already starting to internalize messages about um, the racial hierarchy, the, you know, the, the white supremacist assumptions around light being better than dark, about um, you know, some people being more highly valued than other people or the stereotypes that they see in the media. It's, it's amazing how quickly children start to learn those categories and what's associated with them. So you can hear you know, kindergartners talking about, well, no, you can't be the princess because princesses you know, don't look like you do. Or you, know, you can't play with us because you are in this group. Um, and so parents are not um, protecting their children by not talking to them. You know, sometimes parents will say, well, my child's so innocent, I don't wanna introduce ideas that will take away that innocence. But the fact of the matter is the child is being exposed and has questions. And those questions are not um, necessarily a sign of prejudice, they're a sign of trying to understand the world. I did a TEDx talk and based on a, an example that's in my book um, titled, is my skin brown because I drank chocolate milk? And the story is based on my three-year-old son being in a childcare setting where one of his white friends, my son being a young black boy, my, uh, one of his white friends told him his skin was brown because he drank too much chocolate milk. And he came home and asked me if this was true. Well, it was not, of course, it's not true, in case you're wondering, but, um, but the young child who asked the question had seen him drink. Oh, I think there's some freezing there. <clears throat> Emma, you're still there. I'm still no, there. your skin is brown because you have something in your skin called melanin. Everybody has some. The more you have, the more brown your skin is. And at your school, you are the kid with the most. Well, my kid was tickled to be the kid with the most. <laughs> but, um, but I always ask, you know, the child who had the theory about the chocolate milk, who was talking to him? Who was helping him understand those differences? It's possible to talk about even injustice, like something that happened to George Floyd with a young child in terms that they can understand. And sometimes it's necessary to do so because they're being exposed, whether you want them to or not, to information that's hard to digest. So it's certainly, there's lots to be said on this subject. Um, there is a chapter in my book specifically about how to talk to young children about racism in ways that are developmentally appropriate and help them learn how to speak up against injustice. And that's something that I think every parent should be thinking about. Absolutely. And I really loved that part about, you know, describing what it means to have melanin, just, you know, from a, I guess, a scientific fact, what it means as a black or brown person and what it offers you in terms of protection, you know, just against the sun. I hope that was lovely. Yes. <laughs> um, another question we have here then, Emma, perhaps this is for you. How do you move beyond the duality of social construction of race both being a falsehood and a truth as a brown person 
in order to be authentic and move upwards in society. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not for one moment, you know, saying that uh, like, so society has been stratified along racialized lines for over 400 years now. And that is like a concrete and material reality, you know, so I'm not in any way um, uh, downplaying the significance of that. But I think that isn't kind of acknowledged what I think is less well known is the artificial nature of the categories so I think just having the knowledge that you often hear oh well you know races race is just like biological fact and um you know it's it's always been like this um there's kind of this idea that things can't really be we we can't imagine that things can be different you know so I think realizing that um you know, people have always had different complexions, different features, different hair textures, different phenotypes. But the fact, the idea that that has any intrinsic meaning is a relatively recent, um, recent invention, you know? So I think it's just about people being more familiar with that, which isn't to disregard the realities of racism at all but just so people understand what the socially constructed nature of it means, you know? Yeah. So I think the, um, the, the responses to, so yeah, I, I, I don't think that, I don't think there's really a tension between the two. It's not, it's, well, of course there's a tension between the two, but I don't think it's one or the other. I don't think it's like, oh, by discussing the fact or by acknowledging the fact that it's a social construction, it means that racism, you know, magically doesn't exist it just, or disappears. It's not the case at all. So yeah, there's not necessarily a contradiction between the two. Um, yeah. Something I'm thinking of though, and something that really um, struck me when I was reading, um, rereading re Beverly's book, was the differences between one of the things that I do and what white people can do next is try to initiate just thinking about the differences between the United States, the UK and Ireland, because it's, I think the American reality is we conflate that with the UK and Ireland all, all the time. And I actually think we need to do the work of creating um, actually, um, you know, localized um, responses to the way that processes of racialization show up in the UK, which is different to the United States, which is also different to how it is in Ireland. Of course, um, whiteness in its um, fundamental to the construction of whiteness um, from its origins was a belief in the inherent superiority of whiteness. So that's a constant that we see in countries that imagine themselves as, um, you know, naturally white countries. But there are also differences. You know, America is like a settler colony built on stolen land after a genocide built on the unremunerated labor of enslaved Africans and their descendants who are, you know, when, when Beverly is talking about how they have been intergenerationally locked out of, um, of you know, uh, wealth acquisition, because uh, things like redlining, the, the very recent history of Jim Crow and segregation, 
we don't have those things in the in the United Kingdom, which isn't to say the United Kingdom is not racist, but we have to, I mean, the English are the, the, the people who invented the idea of the white race, but they outsourced it. They did that in the in the Caribbean. They did that in the in, in what would become the United States. But I do think we need more analysis of um, empire here and imperialism and to look at the the um, to look at the fact that um, to, to, look, to identify the differences here, you know, um, rather than conflating um, the, the, the story of a, um, a, a post-slavery a, a post society, which while the British were obviously instrumental in the slave trade, again, it's outsourced. The history of black people here while going back to Roman times, um, there have been black people in Britain far predating the Windrush, but in terms of the populate the black population that we have now in the UK, that's a, a, a population that is kind of you know post is is post Windrush. It's seventy years old, and then you have migration from Africa, uh, migration um, by kind of West Africans in the eighties and nineties. Um, kind of there's been a big demographic shift from Caribbean to West African migration, and I want more specificity about that than mm. a conflating of, of American history, you know? Mm. No, I completely hear that. I think that's really important to differentiate. And yes, yeah, something that I feel is getting lost in today's conversations around race. Exactly, um, exactly. I'm hearing people, Beverly. sorry. You no, know, I was just on. gonna say, I was just gonna say one thing that I um, wonder about in terms of overlap or similarity, I'd be interested in your thoughts about this from either of you, has to do with the uh, impact of immigration, right? So if you look at the United States um, in terms of the demographic shift that has taken place, I mentioned that I was born in the 1950s. In the 1950s, the US population was 90% white, 10% everybody else. If you are a young person born in the last decade today in the United States or being born today, you are likely to be part of a cohort of children that is no, of which there is no majority, right? That the white population is no longer 90% in that cohort of children. It's more like just barely 50% or maybe a little less than 50%. So that rapid shift from what was a clear majority, you know, when Donald Trump says make America great again and other people translate to say, you know, make America white again, he's reflecting on a time when the population was 90% white. And the population has shifted, not so much because of differential birth rates, but largely because of immigration. Um, and that immigration coming from um, non-European countries, coming from Africa, coming from Central America, coming from Asia, um, uh, and so the uh, anti-immigration rhetoric that is emerging in the United States or that is active in the United States, I wonder about how that matches up to um, this sense of, you know, too many immigrants in the UK. You know, is it the, similar or different? I wonder about that. Yeah, there's definitely like an, an, an anti-immigrant um, kind of uh, uh, a potent anti-immigrant um, idea. And I, 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 that's what, um, you know, 
Brexit, the, the vote for Brexit yes. has meant many people have, you know, charged um, the, the Brexit vote with being to a large degree uh, an expression of that anti-immigrant uh, sentiment, which is quite, quite rife. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, but again, it's, it's like, you know, racism is used in the way it has been since its inception to get people to vote or to act against their own best interests. Yes. Because the vote for Brexit is not beneficial to many of the people who voted for it. I don't really know who it is beneficial to, but racism and xenophobia, you know, can be mobilized to, um, to, uh, to it can be used to mobilize pe people to, to, to vote in that way. Yeah, and indeed, I guess that's why you advocated for, you know, building coalitions, you call it, based on, um, I guess, recognizing your, your class oppression or your, your oppression within a capitalist society. And I found that really interesting in your book. Yeah, and the coalitions aren't my idea. You know, they're there with the Combahee River Collective. They're there with the Black Panthers. They're there with Martin Luther King. They're there with all of the people whose icons, you know, whose names we invoke, but whose broader lessons we often we often disregard. But another thing I, I, I would like to add again is the, the difference between being, um, like I, I see a lot of people, you know, using the, um, the, the history of slavery as, as though it's their personal history. And I'm like, you do realize you're not the descendant of slaves. You may be black, but not all black people are, are the descendant of slaves. So I think it's, you know, it's again, the Caribbean population in the UK are largely the descendants of slaves. Whereas the African population who've moved here from the eighties and nineties in increasing numbers in the eighties and nineties are not the descendants of slaves. But I, yeah. I don't see those, um, I just see lots of different stuff being conflated, you know, and it, it, it um, I don't, in inaccuracy, <laughs> especially when it can be weaponized in certain ways, is, it makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah, no, I hear that. Um, and I guess it's time to wrap up. So I'd just like to finish with, with one question um, around hope and sort of optimism for the future, if we can. Um, I think both your books are imbued with quite a lot of optimism and you know you've referenced Afrofuturism in your work I think both of you um, which I think is a uniquely optimistic subversive concept you know where we see black people reimagining a different future for themselves um, Beverly I liked it when you spoke about the children's book Harriet's Underground Railroad in the Sky as a vehicle for mm -hmm. educating children about the possibility for change when it comes to race um, the book draws on Harriet Tubman's life and tells the story of a young black girl who travels back in time and experiences slavery. Um, and then she takes control of her own destiny and she escapes. Um, Emma, you also talk about Afrofuturism a lot um, in your first book, but also, you know, you've done documentary on that for the BBC. Um, and yeah, on a positive note, I guess, in an ideal world, what can we envisage for the next generation when it comes to discussing race and racism? Is it possible to be hopeful for the future? I think it's necessary to be hopeful for the future, <laughs> whether it's possible or not. I think it's a necessity. Um, I often quote Brian Stevenson, who is known in the United States um, as the head of the Equal Justice Initiative and uh, built the what's commonly called the lynching memorial in um, Montgomery. And 
he is, um, he says regularly that injustice prevails when hopelessness persists. Injustice prevails when hopelessness persists. So to me, cultivating a sense of hopefulness is a daily practice. It's something that I feel I have to do in order to persist, you know, in order to keep working. And so, um, so I, I, you know, I describe it as like looking for signs of spring after a horrible winter. You know, you are encouraged when you see a little crocus popping up. You know, sometimes there are small signs in communities um, where uh, organizing has taken place and some change is being initiated and there are coalitions being built. Um, other days, you, you know, you hear the news and you think, my goodness, we're just not making any progress at all. But you have to keep looking for those shoots in order to um, help cultivate them so that they keep growing. You know, to, to abandon that effort would be to give it up altogether. And so, you, so for me, um, I like to say I am a professional optimist because I work at it every day. And would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the um, things about the kind of online permutation of or the online demands of al allyship, you know, a, a allyship being in its online formulation and um, how it's being commonly perceived as something, you know, I, I, I kind of try and un unpack and challenge. But is this idea of, you know, it's just very much to do with kind of like penance and this idea that, um, you know, the, the, the work is ongoing and forever arduous. And even I had some, I had some backlash against the book cover that was just like, oh, this book cover is frivolous. It doesn't like deal with the, the severity, the severity of race. And I'm like, my gosh, it totally does, but it's also like infused infused with hope. And so I, I, I bring in like, you know, ideas um, kind of beyond the, because, because, because the book has some, um, the, the latest book looks at kind of some, you know, philosophical tenets, just, just kind of touches on them, but it looks at the world um, as divided by, you know, Cartesian binaries and with black and white, but also with nature and culture and with the human and the non-human. And because I link a lot of what I'm talking about, you know, to the climate crisis and, and our use of the climate and our, our conceit that we are separate from the natural world and dominant over it, which is again, an inheritance from, from, from whiteness, you know, um, I, I, I kind of want people to make connections you know, maybe between things they haven't thought about before and to consider our entanglement and our being of the, the, the world rather than like our, our dominance of it. And, you know, I'm, by the end, I'm talking about, um, I suggest that maybe plants are our allies and, you know, kind of touching on ideas mm -hmm. about like psilocybin. And um, I also talk about dancing, you know, I have read, read, read and dance um, because, these are the most joyous expressions of, 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 of being, you know, of being human, but also, you know, I, yeah. yeah, like, yeah, just dance. And there's, there's so much joy in the world that is even more necessary in spite of all the terrible things that exist, you know? So I, I really hope that sense of hopefulness and, and, and joy is infused through my work. 
I'm quite a fun-loving person yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think that comes across here. And I think, yeah, in your work, there's definitely that level of, of hopefulness in, in both your books. So Beverly, Emma, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's been inspiring. It's been a pleasure. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you.